This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Today's episode is a conversation with Dr. Ruby Huang. She's a professor at the College of Medicine at the National Taiwan University and currently focuses on ovarian cancer. Our conversation traces her journey to studying ovarian cancer, the challenges facing the study and treatment of the disease, and how spatial biology has enabled her to study tumor heterogeneity. We also take the time to discuss where she sees gaps in the research of women's health and how we can go about closing that gap. Good morning, Dr. Huang. It is good to have you on the podcast to commemorate Women's Day. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, could I have a brief background of your academic journey? Um, yes, sure. So I am a medical doctor. I graduated from National Taiwan University. Uh, I won't tell you which year. <laughs> And then I started my um, residency training in obstetrics and gynecology in National Taiwan University Hospital. So the aim at the time was really to, you know, be a clinician. Mm -hmm. But when I was caring for my patients and I realized that, you know, research is interesting. You know, some of the scientific discovery is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I decided why not, you know, go through some advanced trainings in research. So I um, decided to uh, enroll myself into a PhD program in National Taiwan University. You know, while I was uh, working, uh, being trained as a, a OBGYN doctor at the same time. So I uh, got my PhD into a, a in 2008. And then um, after that, I could continue as a clinician, as mm -hmm. everyone else. But I decided that, you know, the, the research is, uh, it, it brings up so many different possibilities. And so I thought, okay, you know, I, I should and I could spend more time on research. So this was this was when I decided to pursue uh, continue as a postdoc, and I moved to Singapore from Taiwan, um, and started the entire journey as a clinician scientist until now. I can imagine that was such an adventure. Like I think, because in treating it, be a, a a little bit lot more linear, whereas with research, it is expansive and and very discovering in nature. Would you say that? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in treating the patients, the gratification um, you, will, you will be getting is immediate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you have this instant feedback, whereas in research, you have to endure for much, much longer. And you have frustrations, you know, uh, along the way for that. Now, I'm not saying that treating patients, you won't get frustrated. You do. Of course. Yes. But but I'm just saying that sometimes you it's it's easier to get the immediate gratification in return. Um, so I think, 
yes, you know, when when I set onto this journey, one crucial step was that in terms of mentality, mm-hmm. you know, I have to play some trick to change that mentality because this is something that um, in the medical training um, is seldom touched upon that how mm-hmm. you build up the tenacity and perseverance mm-hmm. in terms of um, engaging into the scientific research. And could I ask what the factors were leading up to you um, focusing on the study of ovarian cancer? It started with one patient. You know, I think everything starts with someone close to you or, um, you know, for me to decide to work on ovarian cancer started with one patient. I was in the second year of residency and uh, I was in charge of the oncology uh, work at the time. And there was this ovarian cancer patient. She was very young. She was probably like only eight or 10 years older than me at the time. So to me, she was like, you know, my big, bigger sister. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and she, she has suffered so much, um, undergone, numerous surgeries and several lines of chemotherapy. Essentially, she was not in the best shape in her life at that moment. Mm -hmm. And she was still young. And then she wanted to be cured. And she has this strong will to go through any aggressive treatment. But we all knew at the time that we could probably just do what we can. At the time, the advancement for ovarian cancer treatment hasn't been that much compared to now. Mm-hmm. So I took care of her um, for almost two months. And that had, I think that had a huge impact um, um, you know, mentally for me as well, because I still can recall that she was holding my hand at, 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 in her bed saying that she wants to leave. Yeah, and, and that has a tremendous impact on me until even until this day. So, you know, that that drove me to, you know, how come that, you know, such a young life, um, we couldn't do much on this terrible disease. So uh, that was the start of that. And then, Along the way, there there are other patients. There there was another patient. Um, she is kind of like a you know like a mother figure to me at the time. Um, she also was you know heavily pretreated, and then she had recurrence, and uh, she has this ascites building up. But she was luckier at the time that uh, the drug. Um, Avastin yep. was just launched. And then so we got her compassionate use for, for Avastin. At the time, Avastin has yet to be approved for, yep. for the indication for van cancer, but we got her compassionate usage at the time. And she managed to maintain this uh, stable disease and in a relatively good you know, quality of life. She would get a vaccine treatment and then, you know, go on to for, you know, overseas travels with her husband and spend, you know, valuable time with your family. 
And then, you know, for almost two years, living with a disease at a control, uh, controllable state. I was already in my um, PhD study at the time. So I knew very clearly that, you know, science, the development of medicine and, and the right science on the right patient, you could improve their lives a lot. Yeah. I just had a conversation with uh, someone yesterday and we were, we were thinking about um, how there are many different factors and, and how even our microRNAs regulate uh, the gene expression within our cells. And so then like person to person, it can vary so, so much, um, even to like drug reaction and, and things like that, which I guess research is meant to go and uncover, right? Yes, exactly. I, I was giving a talk um, uh, uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, that talking about heterogeneity uh, inside a tumor. Mm -hmm. I just gave that example of ovarian cancer, and actually, it's a subtype of ovarian cancer. And one of the questions raised by uh, the audience is that you know, do you really think that personalized precision medicine? is real, that given such huge heterogeneity, um, you know, particularly I was just talking about one cancer type and a few, a few uh, patients, you already see much heterogeneity. Um, but I'm still, um, you know, positive of that, about that. And I think the whole field has shown that it is possible it's just that how we um, solve, how we decipher the noise further, how we help to, you know, to deal with those, to identify those noise at the background in the system and within the tumor, and then think of a way to deal with it. And mm -hmm. probably that's the way to uh, move forward. It might be difficult to... Um make a hierarchy of challenges, but could I ask if you could describe the biggest challenge facing uh, the understanding and treatment of ovarian cancer? Well, ovarian cancer, um, the biggest challenge over the decade was that the patient you usually um, diagnosed at a late stage, advanced stage, simply because, you know, um, the symptoms were vague. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, these are the symptoms that you won't link it to ovarian or to pelvic or for, to, you know, gynecologic diseases. Um, so it's very difficult to catch them uh, at early stage. But to catch the disease at early stage, you need to know what are the early lesions or, or even the pre-malignant lesions leading to cancer, right? But for ovarian cancer, for the longest time, uh, people have tried every possible way to screen patients using, you know, blood biomarkers, using images like ultrasound combinations, you know, all sorts of things. And all the trials have failed so far. And then, so we, we, couldn't have the best strategy to pick up that early lesions. And until about like 10, uh, 10 years ago, 
that people suddenly feel realize that hey, we've been looking at the wrong lesions, even though the disease is called ovarian cancer. Uh, the field realized that some of the ovarian cancer, the origin of the cells, was not actually from the ovary. It's actually from the neighboring fallopian tube, the cells at the tip of the, 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 the end of the fallopian tube actually was the culprit. So, you know, so that uh, gave the field a complete different direction. And then with the development of um, the discovery of BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation leading to the homolux recombination deficiency and the development of PARP inhibitors. Now we've seen that, you know, probably for the first time in the entire history of ovarian cancer treatment, that we actually see a significant reduction of mortality of ovarian cancer patients. Um, so the challenge are still there for the pre uh, the early detection of the early lesions because if it's at the tip of the the, the end of a lopian tube, this is not something that is easy to catch on the you know non-invasive basis, right? So how do you prevent that? So there are several studies coming up saying that, you know, um, maybe after your childbearing period, um, when there is a necessity to undergo um, surgeries, maybe yeah. in some women, uh, it is advised that you can consider to take off the fallopian tube and then to reduce the chance to get ovarian cancer. This is at a diagnostic. Yeah. And at the treatment, like I said, we only had the advancement from having a vastin, and then now we have uh, the weapon of uh, PARP inhibitors for ovarian cancer. But still, ovarian cancer, once you the patient developed uh, chemo resistance or even being you know developed resistance on PARP inhibitor, then your treatment options are very, very limited. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of um, um, stromal reactions inside the tumors. So, you know, a lot of conventional new therapies, such as immunotherapies or even cell-based therapies, have not shown great uh, positive results in ovarian cancer. So this is the probably the, the remaining challenges in terms of ovarian cancer treatment. What do you do for those patients who have um, uh, emerged from the uh, chemo resistance? Mm -hmm. how, how do you give them the best treatment? Yeah. yeah. I know you talked um, briefly about um, heterogeneity, but I, I wanted to focus on the on the paper featuring spatial profiling, where you explore uh, intratumor heterogeneity. How did the spatial aspect of of the profiling assist you in exploring that heterogeneity uh, versus, say, if you did something like bulk RNA seq? I think I um, I talk about this in several occasions. Uh, about how we actually land 
in the spatial field. It's a cool technology. And I know a lot of people, you know, those um, geeks for, for new techs would just jump on any new technology. But I, I'm not that, that kind of geek yet. Um, we, we, we land in spatial field because we realized that our data was driven us towards that directions. We've been using um, RNA-seq, we've been using the gene expression microarray for a long time to look at the gene expression uh, profiling uh, intertumoral heterogeneity, you can say mm-hmm. that in ovarian cancer. And we know that ovarian cancer, particularly high-grade serous ovarian cancer, you have different gene expression molecular subtypes. So at the time we were thinking that towards that, that direction, whether we can stratify the patients using this gene, molecule, uh, gene, gene expression molecular subtype. And we actually started a trial in Singapore with my um, collaborator, uh, Dr. David Tan, uh, and my collaborators in Australia, in Melbourne, in Peter Mack, uh, Dr. David Patel and Linda Malishkin. We, we, we actually started a trial with that. But when we were using this gene expression, uh, this, this molecular subtype signatures to stratify patients, uh, by the way, we use nanostring as our as of choice as well. And we realized that, you know, when we profiled the patient's biopsies from different sites of her mm-hmm. tumor, right? And then we could appreciate in a lot of patients that you have consistent subtype calling. So that's great, right? So you can easily determine which subtype this patient is and then whether she's eligible to be put on the trial. But we encounter patients that um, give that that give us just different subtypes on different blocks of her tumors. And what do you do? Was it was it similar? Uh, was it different across different tumors or within a single tumor? It's actually just look at the primary ovarian tumors. And then, you know, when the pathologist, the ovarian tumor, the tumor size is actually very, very big. Yeah. Okay, you have a lot of tumors. And then so pathologists, they usually would make different blocks from different parts of the tumor. So even from that, we could identify different molecular subtypes, not to mention we, we haven't yet to look into the primary versus the metastasis yet, yeah. right? So just for primary tumors, and then we could see that. And actually, we when we went back to our um, ovarian cancer like microarray cohort, we actually assembled the biggest cohort uh, so far. Uh, we have 3,400 microarray data set uh, built up. And then when we look into that 3,000 over uh, patients, gene expression profiles, we realized that there are 30% of the patients, actually there are more than two subtype callings, dom- being dominant subtypes in uh, in their tumors. So, so, you know, there exists uh, heterogeneity inside a tumor. I think when we, when people talk about intratumor heterogeneity, ITH, in the past, you know, you know, the clonal mutation was the main uh, 
uh, issue being raised, right? You look at the clonal evolution of, of the driver mutation and the new mutation emerging from the selection pressures. But, but in terms of transcriptomic and the gene expression subtype evolution, I think there's less uh, pa papers on that. And particularly in ovarian cancer. So we, so, so when we had that um, mixture of subtype of data, we know that, you know, going in into the intratumor heterogeneity is inevitable. And then why spatial? Okay. Uh, we could simply use the single cell analysis to help us with that as well. So why spatial? Um, I, I, you know, my PhD training was in cell biology. So when I was doing my PhD, I had to sit in front of the you know, confocal microscopy, look at slides, look at images, look at cells. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of like to cease to believe. Yeah. So I want to see how these mixtures were mixed, right? So, so we actually took several patient samples, the FAP samples, and then stained for several markers representing each subtype. And then we clearly see that, you know, with different mixture, there seems to have different patterns of the marker distribution, even for the same marker of interest. So, so I realized that, you know, just to look at the, the numeric calling of, of a subtype probably is not enough. You probably need to couple with the images, the pattern of that staining. So um, I think also, you know, fortunately, um, nanostring and then the whole spatial biology field uh, is was was developed. You have the proper research tool mm -hmm. to answer that questions. And then plus that, you know, we know that we are entering the machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, by just pattern recognition. So yes. I think now we're entering the era that, you know, this kind of research questions could you could could be answered by using the available tools. Yeah. And then I think I think you were uh, very honest at the end of at the end of that paper saying um, that you need good study in design and having good research questions, especially uh, when it comes to working with the DSP. Uh, do you have any advice to give when it comes to generating research questions and similarly uh, optimizing study design? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, it was our very honest reflection after that, 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 that paper. That paper is actually um, kind of like a proof of concept. Yes. Yeah, a, stud, a case study. Uh, just look at uh, one patient to compare her primary tumors versus one of her metastases. Mm -hmm. So we, we are, we're working on uh, that paper, to expand that paper, actually, to compare the primary versus multiple um, metastasis site using the spatial and you, you can imagine the complexity so so when we first enter we were like okay um you know let's just look at compare the primary and the metastasis okay but 
the, the issue is that, you know, particularly ovarian cancer, we, we have such a huge tumor mass, right? Huge tumor mass. And then from our previous um, experience, we know that there, the heterogeneity will exist just from sampling different sites of the tumor. Then, you know, when you do the spatial, especially for the DSP, the Geomax, you have to choose your re, uh, region of interest. Where do you start? How do you start? You know, because morphologically, it, it can't help you at all. So, so how do you start? So we realize that probably we need to have, you know, kind of like one exercise first. It's just to kind of like an exploration. I know it's crazy to use to use DSP to use Geomax for discovery because that 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 tells you it's it, it, that is a very expensive uh, exercise for that. Yeah. But we realize that probably it is inevitable to 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 have that sort of exercise to without having that that baseline that baseline understanding. Yes, exactly. And- yeah, especially no one has ever worked on that because uh, we were we are not we we were working on a. Um, specific histology of ovarian cancer, which is the ovarian clear cell carcinoma. Mm-hmm. It is uh, quite common in East Asia. So, um, and then uh, no one actually look in, inside the um, heterogeneity using the uh, spatial tools. So we realized, oh, okay, we probably need to come up with some randomly, you know, s- selection of the ROI. And, and then just to see, just to give a smell of the data and then that was the result of that that first patient of her her prepared primary metastasis um and then i think we selected quite a good number of rnis from uh, rois from her tumors uh, and then us distributed the, the rois were distributed quite uh, randomly uh, throughout her her tumors and then we did see something interesting. And then what we saw was that if you look at her uh, pancytokeratin segments, which signifies the, uh, the tumor segments, her primary tumor seems to be quite homogeneous. Just using the, um, we, we just used the core pro- protein uh, panel, the 18 uh, antibodies. But, but her metastasis, um, had a completely different picture. The pancytokeratin segment starts to have heter- show up heterogeneity. Yes. There, you know, it actually fits with a lot of um, data ob- obtained previously from other solid tumors using other um, tools, right? So that could formulate the first uh, hypothesis for that. And then with that experience, then we know what questions um, you will be, we will be asking moving forward. And for, so for the subsequent um, metastasis, so for the subsequent cases, then you know where to go, mm-hmm. you know what to be found. And I think because um, it, it is kind of... Um, Okay, for, for any research, for, for any 
a study design for for spatial studies. You you have to know you have to know what's the research question anyway. But it's like when do you start to formulate that hypothesis? I think for for DSP, my feeling is that probably when you first look at your slides, start to select the RI, you probably won't have much clue, but you probably will get clearer and clearer when you build up that, uh, your expand your cohort, when you build up more of the, um, the uh, uh, analysis data point, which is different from other spatial tools where, you know, their tools is probably when you have the whole slide uh, imaging scanning, yeah. you know, all the readouts will, will come up. So you probably, you you probably most likely, you will need to decide when you are processing the images, processing the, the um, you know, the molecular sig- signals, right? But in the end, you, you still need to select how to process your data, which pixels you are going to compare with what pixels, what areas were them, you know. So, so you still need to have that, uh, you, know, you know, thoughts kicking in mm-hmm. somewhere or the other. But I, I also feel like it's, from, from what you've just described and um, seeing as that, that not having any precedence or anyone who's done that before, then um it was pure exploration as you as you described it and yeah i think yes it was really exploratory i think probably i have to say i was brave enough and then i have to say that you know you have to prepare to to throw in some big chunk of budget by but mm-hmm. just doing that and then not only that i uh, we realized that actually uh, not much about the bioinformatics analysis or the consensus have uh, have been built by the field um, because I think there are still issues. For example, you know how do you deal with the batch to batch? Because you know, to me, it all, almost bring me back to the microarray day because this is all hybridization for the microarray. Yes. It's all hybridization from each batch you would have different backgrounds, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you have the controls built in, right? But it will, you will still land, land um, you know, in the same problems as microarray, you would definitely have to solve the batch to batch. And then, you know, it's actually interesting that, okay, probably we can utilize the methods <clears throat> that we've been using for the uh, to correct the battery fat as what we did for microarray, right? And then so um, maybe the old tools could still could be redeployed uh, in spatial in mm-hmm. in terms of uh, DSP analysis. So we we had to play around a lot uh, with with the data, and I think and another exploration is. I know a lot of people, a lot of papers were using the TMA, the tissue microarray to do it. We didn't do it that way. We sort of like, you know, painstakingly taking each patient's entire section 
just mm-hmm. to go through it. Um, for several reasons, I think for apparent reasons, first of all, ovarian tumor is a huge tumor. Of course, we can punch TMAs, but where? Yes, yes. It, you, you would have the same problem as picking ROIs. Yes, yes. You know, I, our data already show us that, you know, different blocks will give you different subtype calls. So, so if I really want to decipher the intratumor heterogeneity, so how do I, you know, where do I choose? I can't. I realize I, 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 will, let, I will face the, you know, difficulties in, in making that, that decision. So we have no choice but to, you know, look at the whole slide at the moment. I mean, but, but if anyone has good suggestion to me of, of how to do that, you know, one way I, I know one way of doing that probably is you take the same block and then you punch several holes at yeah. different places, right? But I could immediately see my pathologist's face you know, like drop because for them it's like that block will be gone forever. Mm-hmm. And for them having a block disappearing from their collection, probably you're committing the biggest crime. Right. And <laughs> so, so th- that is why we've been using the whole section. And ha- talking about pathologists, you know, I-, I find it's amazing that, you know, pathologists, they, they believe, they like this, this te- spatial technology a lot, so much. I, I, I got a lot of buy-ins from pathologists. Because that brings back to their core bread and butter mm-hmm. is pattern recognition. They've been yeah. doing that for their entire life, right? And then suddenly you have this amazing, you know, technology, this tool to help them to actually to do things that they couldn't do in the past. Yeah. So, you know, um, so I, I, so it's actually much, much easier to collaborate with pathologists on on this spatial uh, projects. Yeah, it feels it feels like the fields are which used to be very separate like the genetics and pathology are kind of meshing into one where you're getting a lot more collaboration. Yeah. But pathologists they they have good eyes, you know, they really have like, you know, pigeons abilities to recognize the patterns. They probably won't have that much of training in terms of the uh, genomics. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, uh, it's a dialogue. I think this is a process of dialogue. So so now we have several projects uh, in, in the universities. And then, you know, people come to my, my lab to get access to Geomax for their projects. And we provide uh, technical expertise. And then you have medical oncologist clinicians. They come in with their, you know, questions, translational questions. And then mm-hmm. you have pathologists coming in. So you have this triangular collaboration. And then mm-hmm. plus we have collaborators in computations, in machine learning. So yeah. you, you have this, you know, you can bring people together to actually make things happen. Broadly, where do you still see gaps in women's health and how do we work towards improving that? 
Mm, if you talk about women's health in general or any health issues related to female for women, is that we don't have enough research for female-centered or female-related health issues. For a lot of female-specific diseases, and not, not just diseases, for a lot of female-specific conditions, we actually don't have enough research. I'm giving you one example. Period. Yeah. Menstruation. Okay. I recently launched a, a, a general education course in National Taiwan University on period. The entire course for one whole semester talks nothing but menstruation period. We started with the um, biology, physiology, medical aspects, scientific aspects of menstruation, and then broaden it to, you know, the menstrual products, the entire industry, and then to the, you know, societal cultural issues related mm -hmm. to period, like period poverty, period stigmas. And mm -hmm. then we explore, you know, through literature, drama, how menstruation has been captured and perceived. Yes. In in modern world or you know throughout um, the human history, and when when I was preparing for the course materials, and then I realized that there are actually not enough research on this. A lot of myths, a lot of beliefs, a lot of um, a lot of you know, investigation, but we don't actually have enough solid science. You know, one interesting um, question could be the premenstrual syndrome that, you know, a lot of, a lot of women will experience before, mm -hmm. you know, their menstrual period. And then the society tend to actually either avoid it or, you know, or to, to, to perceive it from a negative way. I think it's related to how we see mental uh, mm -hmm. illness as well, because yes. it's very similar. But, but premenstrual syndrome is much, much milder than that. But there must be some scientific background, some scientific ways to explain why some women will have more severe um, PMS and mm -hmm. while some don't. And then, you know, um, to kind of, you know, I always believe that if you can find a scientific mechanism behind certain um, scenarios that you could help to, to destigmatize it in a way, right? Because you know that, hey, you know, this is not you know, pretend, this is not pretentious. This is something that is for real. You know, it's, it, your, your, your body is, is, um, is wrong. It's, you have some issues. So, you know, so, um, and I realized that there are, there are not, there, there are a lot, of course, but, you know, deep, I'm talking about deep science and then especially multidisciplinary science on menstruation. And, um, but for, for the, the issue is when you, when you think about the funding, who will fund uh, a research on 
um, menstruation because, you know, probably it's, it's not lethal, right? You don't have an impact on human lives that much, mortality, but, but of course an impact on the quality of women's lives. So, but I just don't think as a medical and scientific community, we have done enough for, for questions like this. This is a, a very, very fundamental question. This is very far from the ovarian cancer that I, I've been working on for, for, for my entire careers, right? But, but when you think of it, the impact on that, you know, you have every day, you it would a have... Lived, it's a lived reality. Yes, it's a lived reality. Every day you pass by someone, she might be menstruating. You pass by someone, she might be having a PMS. You know, it it's it's everywhere. And then it's beyond it's beyond uh culture, it's beyond ethnicity, and it's actually beyond gender, right? Like like you, you probably go home to your family or friends, and then you will encounter one of your female friends your female family members going through that at certain period of, of your life, right? So this, in a way, I think, you know, still falls short, but it, I have to admit it has been much, much better compared to before because we know that um, the menstrual movement in terms of, you know, ending the poverty, um, period of poverty, the pure stigma, fighting against the pure stigma. We know that globally, you know, there are a lot of actions, right? So yes, and and but I think we we should do we could do more uh, in science. Definitely, yeah. And I guess to close off, as a leader in women's research, do you have a few words uh, for women who are pursuing research and working? Or, or work in the STEM fields? Don't make that little voice inside your heart disappear. You know, when you have that um, spark in your, in your heart, knowing that something is interesting, you have that itchy point that, you know, makes you wake up at night thinking about it you know just just trust your gut feelings no matter what people say trust your gut feelings but you have to be realistic as well just don't put it down you can always put it as a pet project but just don't abandon that because you you will never know that maybe one day that little spark will start a huge fire and then it will evolve from a pet project to your real career. Yeah, I think I think moving on from from a single a singular thought into how it can uh, turn into practical application could very well develop into things that change the way we live and change the way treatment works. Um, I I really appreciate your time being on the podcast, and it was extremely inspiring to hear the courage that. Uh, you've had like the call to clinical science uh, away from from being a clinician. Um, yeah, this is extremely insightful. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.